This is an ABC podcast. Come, come, come and make eyes at me down at the old woolen bush. Big belters and bicycle acts, human cannonballs and comic chorus girls. No, we're not talking about the latest TV talent show, but the wonderful, often bizarre world of the music hall. Hello, I'm Rebecca Huntley, and today on The History Listen, we join Fiona Gruber on a very personal journey into her family's past. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. So here we go with the first song, a little song entitled, Last Night I Was In The Mood, Tonight I Must Get Some Sleep. That's the original cheeky chappy, the great Max Miller. And like him, half my English ancestors made a living from fooling about, singing songs and putting on grease paint. They were jobbing actors, and many of them were in the music halls. I've decided to explore this Victorian and early 20th century world. And first, I'm going to follow one particular family rumour, that my great-grandfather Walter Groves was ripped off by Charlie Chaplin. The figure started with pure absurdity, with uh, baggy trousers and in contradiction to the baggy trousers, a very tight, heel-fitting coat. And then in contrast to my rather large head, I uh, wore a little derby hat. And in contrast to my position in life, a cane which was a symbol of the leisure class, shall we say. That's Chaplin in 1958, talking about the Tramp, his most famous creation, and how he came about. But is that the whole story? I'm going to ask performer and Chaplin expert Dan Kamen. He's written two books on Chaplin. So I spoke with him from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he's based. Dan, in your book, the comedy of Charlie Chaplin, I found a reference to my great-grandfather, Walter Groves, and in it, you say, he was the man who invented the funny walk that Charlie Chaplin made famous as the Tramp. Dan, is that true? Well, all we have is the word of the man who ran the comedy company, Fred Carno. Carno had enormously popular comedy companies uh, that were performing sketches that he would write or he would hire people to write. And one of them was called the General Post Office. And the main character was a character named Perkins. And that character was played by your great-grandfather first. He introduced the character, evidently, Walter Groves. Uh, Bingo, so it's true. Fred Kitchen, who made it the signature role for him, and eventually by Chaplin. I think genius is an individual stylist who does things remarkably well. Chaplin was a genius, but his genius wasn't all about originality. And if you read the plot of it, you can just see so many Chaplin films that sprang from it. There's a a scene in which uh, he's applying for the job, very much like Chaplin's film A Dog's Life. There's a scene where he adopts a child, a little baby, uh, very much like Chaplin's film The Kid. But the central character is a sort of bumbling person who stumbles into the job and gets promoted way above his station and ends up causing havoc in the post office. So in a sense, even though he might have created it, he never was going to own it. Yes, Carno expected everybody to learn every role. 
And so the players became like interchangeable parts because he had this enormous number of companies. He had a facility in Camberwell where he would train. It was called the Fun Factory. A comedian couldn't have had a better training ground than being with Fred Carnot. He was the most popular impresario in British Music Hall history. I'm really interested in the fact that my poor great-grandfather, jobbing actor, I mean, he was a triple threat. He could sing, he could dance as well as act. His work was, as you say, part of Fred Carnot's circus. And when he died, and he died in 1906, very prematurely, his widow, mm. also an actor, put out an advert in uh, the theatrical paper of the time, The Era. It is titled The Walter Groves Sketch Company. Artful Jim, Paul Pink, fully protected. Address Mrs. Walter Groves, Ivy House, 148 Kennington Park Road, London, South East. She was trying to protect his sketches, his famous sketches, and try and get other artists to pay if they use them. Was that common and was that successful? Oh, sure. People would develop acts and they were unique. They would put out advertisements. Dan means they try to protect their work. Without permission of uh, the music would all say that on the covers, apply for public performance to so-and-so. And the fact that he wrote sketches of his own that his wife protected, his widow protected afterwards, is very fascinating and, and evocative, and a lot of people did. That became a generation of performers. To have performed with Fred Carnot meant that you were the uh, Oxford graduates of <laughs> comedy, of show business. Chaplin was six years with Fred Carnot's company, four of them in America, back and forth, America and Canada. So when he was hired by movies, he had an advantage that almost no American comedian had, um, which was he knew how to do acrobatic comedy. And within months, the world went Chaplin crazy. And nicely when the family talks loud. So there you go. Chaplin, who was much younger than my great-grandfather, became mega-famous in the silent movies. And Walter Groves couldn't even lay claim to his funny walk. Yes, everybody was doing it, pinching each other's material, copying each other's mannerisms. Chaplin had lots of imitators too. There's a rumour that when Chaplin secretly entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike competition as the Tramp, he came second. I'll be delving a little bit deeper into the world of music hall in a moment. But first, I want to go a little further into this world of copying with a couple of contemporary performers. I come from a street performer background where plagiarism is actually a thing. Other street performers will watch you and just simply, without any qualms, take it and use it in the street show. Like They will just rip each other off left, right and centre. It's just a thing that happens and there's nothing you can do about it. That's Paul Curry. I've caught up with him and fellow comedian Paul Foote at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I think this is something that affects the more conventional comedians than us. Yes. Because if you do a conventional, observational, or whatever sort of routine, then it's very easy for someone else to do something similar. And what happens often is famous comedians will have writers who help them, and then it'll often be the writer who will say, this is my idea, but actually they've gone and heard it somewhere and all that sort of stuff. So it's not necessarily the fault of the famous person. My great-grandfather Walter Groves was a writer too, of course, and I found a press cutting from 1888, which revealed that he'd punched a collaborator in the face for pinching his sketches and been fined £50 to keep the peace. 
But today, as in the past, your work might not be as unique as you think. I'm in my bubble and I create things that I've never created before, something new, something different, and I see what people think of it. I've got a thing in my show called The Madness, when I say all words that don't make any sense, but they're sort of inexplicably funny, weird phrases and things. I don't know anyone else who's done that. I, I don't know, but I mean, I think it's exciting. There's lots of... Have you done that? I have a piece of, <laughs> I have a piece of my show called Gibberish, oh, yes. where I just let my brain go loose, and I just to a piece of classical old-school uh, music, and I just yes. speak absolute gibberish to the audience. <laughs> but there you go. I mean, you know, we're from a similar... Uh, Obviously, two acorns from a similar tree. <laughs> so, it's as hard to protect your work today as it was for my great-grandfather in the past. And we're heading into that past again. Tonight, at the London Hippodrome, the tattooed girl, Harry Houdini. Because I want to know more about the era of musical entertainment that produced both Charlie Chaplin and my great-grandfather, Walter Groves. I'm heading to London and Blythe House, home to the theatre archives of the Victoria and Albert Museum. There's textiles conservation here, there's woodwork, all various departments of the V&A. That's Cathy Hale, curator of popular entertainment. So, now in a room with our object collection. This is a so vast treasure house of theatre memorabilia, posters, programmes, contracts, costumes, props. which has swords and also two walking sticks that belonged to the great Scottish comedian Harry Lauder, who actually, I believe, had an Australian connection. Certainly went to Australia. He did. Harry spent several months here in 1914 and was mobbed wherever he went. I think he must have appealed particularly to homesick Scots. Harry Lauder became the highest paid performer in the world, apparently, by, by 1911. Ah, here you are. Let me show you a few things related to the wonderful performer, Pansy Chinnery. That was her stage name. Oh, this is a bit more my speed. Pansy left us a, a superb trunk full of posters related mostly to her variety career. This box includes oh. her hooks. Why hooks? hooks? One of the part of her act. We now call it a, um, a strong jaw act. Strong jaw? This is the pansy hook, which shows the indentations of her teeth. Oh, this is a, a leather strap with a great big hook on the end. I mean, it looks gruesome. So this, I was going to say this poor girl, but this was, she did this voluntarily her, for a living. Her act, yes. And the lovely thing was that we know, because we got this collection from her grandchildren, was that although she had this really, really exciting life being shot from a giant crossbow and twirling herself by her teeth, on a leather strap from the ceiling of the theatre. She died in a nursing home at the age of 90 in 1969. Cracking her own walnuts, presumably. For the benefit of Mr Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. The Hendersons will all be there, late of Pablo Frank is there, what a scene. 
musical and variety was what entertained people so much all over. It wasn't for the toffs. Um, well, to begin with, it very much was for the working man. And then later on, it was for everybody. In the 1860s, somebody called Charles Morton began to make a kind of music hall where women were welcomed and specially invited for, for ladies' evenings. And you can't underestimate the fact that there was no television. In the early days, there was no cinema. People didn't travel. So you went to your local place and you saw the local stars and you heard the local humour. And I don't think you can imagine how much fun it was, how exciting it was for a huge amount of people. Even small towns would have had a music hall. And then by the 1890s, when they were building huge variety theatres to accommodate the number of people and the number of acts, there was a vast number of acts going round to all the music halls, like musical clowns. I mean, have you ever heard of musical clowns? No, but I also hadn't heard of acts using electricity either, and I believe they were popular in the later music hall, and there was a chap who was called the human billiard ball. It seems that the sort of acts in musical, you know, you couldn't imagine some of them. They're quite bizarre in terms of our idea of a bit of singing and a bit of dancing. Oh, absolutely. There were people who did animal impressions. There was somebody called the human hairpin. In fact, we so, do among these thousands of posters and artefacts, is there anything relating to my great-grandfather Walter Groves? It's finding these people. If you can come in for two months, <laughs> come into our reading room, sit there, just go through box after box of programmes, you may very well come across Walter Groves. But it is a bit like a needle in a haystack. People think that they can easily find their ancestors. They may very well be here. They must be here. I'll probably find Walter Groves tomorrow <laughs> when you're not here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but I would tell you if I did. Well, that's a disappointment. Luckily, although I've got no posters, I have found quite a few references to him in newspapers of the time, particularly in the era, which specialised in theatre. Palace Theatre of Varieties, Manchester, July 4th, 1899. Chief among the newcomers is Walter Groves, well-known favourite with Manchester audiences who appeared with his company in a screamingly funny sketch entitled Artful Jim. Tonight at the Palace Theatre of Varieties, Winona, the champion lady, Rodara, the juggler, Walter Groves and company, and Nat Clifford. Mr Walter Groves, in whom was recognised a pantomime favourite of years ago, was a humorous Scroggins, and his admirable fooling and clever singing kept the audience in the best of tempers. So Walter did have a successful career, and although I'm still digging for information about him, I know he was respected for his talent. One of the stars he appeared on the bill with several times was Australia's own Florrie Ford, one of the biggest names in British Music Hall. She came from a rich tradition over here, and I think it's time to dig into the Australian variety scene. What was it like? Jeff Brownwig's my man. He's the former head of sound and radio at the National Film and Sound Archives in Canberra. 
He's a fount of knowledge on Australian Music Hall and one of Florrie's biggest fans. He's taking a bit of interest in Australian vaudeville. So, what got him started? I'm interested because my grandmother used to sing Florrie Ford and the songs they sang were wonderful things like Hold your hand out, naughty boy Hold your hand out. That's a clap in the middle, by the way, as I get slapped. Um, it was a gentle slap, of, of course. Of course, a mere I tap. Said to my grandmother, where does that come from? Oh, that's just something we used to sing, she said. And what I discovered was she had this incredible stock of songs, which I'd thought of as her song and also as English, but it all turned out to be repertoire of Florrie Ford from Melbourne. Florrie Ford ran away from home with her sister Nan when I think she was 17, headed up to Sydney, and they had a career of some sort in Sydney. Then her brother was dispatched to drag her back home again and her family accepted that she would probably go on the stage. So she has a bit of a career in Melbourne and on August bank holiday in 1897, she turns up in London and plays three music halls on the one night and she sings the same song at each one. So was that common, Jeff? Oh, very common, yeah, yeah. In fact, often music hall stars had a driver and a car so they could quickly get from South London to North London and they'd be sort of ferried about. So uh, the timings must have been exquisite. Florrie was a chorus singer. She sang songs where the choruses were really memorable so she could get something going. The audience would join in and they had to be things that you could learn quite quickly. Now, my great-grandfather, Walter Groves, appeared with Florrie Ford on numerous bills, but then she went on to develop her own um, company. And I'm interested in this because one of the themes of my inquiries is that my great-grandfather had real trouble keeping the copyright of his work, protecting his ideas. Did people try to uh, rip off Flory Ford or copy her? And how did she protect herself? Well, I think basically she didn't. You had to be good enough at your songs for people to want to hear you. So they want to buy your records and they want to see you on stage. Even here, protecting your exclusivity was no easy job. She would buy it from an artist. She would then own it. And I think there was a bit of a tacit understanding that if it was your stuff, you would have the use of it for as long as you needed and that other people might perform it. But uh, basically, it's a Flory song. So this amazing world of musical, when did it start in Australia? And was it always linked to the UK or did it develop independently? Well, the whole issue of Australian music history is quite interesting, I think. I mean, there must have been people singing in pubs from the very first days. The first piano was loaded off the Sirius in the first fleet. Oscar Comitant, who was a visiting Frenchman for the 1880 International Exhibition in Melbourne, he was a piano salesman. And he said up to that point, 700,000 pianos had been imported into Australia. Now, even if that's only half true, it's an astonishing figure. Setting aside the indigenous population who we know weren't counted at the time, the population at that stage was about one and a quarter million. Now, that makes something like a piano for every couple of people. I mean, it's an astonishing thing. 
Tell us about Harry Rickards and people like that who went around the world looking for talent to bring to Australia. And Musgroves, the people um, who put together JC Williamson's proprietary limited, they're of course from North America, but uh, both North America and Britain produce these impresarios who actually develop theatre circuits like the Tivoli circuit. The Tivoli Tapper, Leon the Wizard, Paul Cingavelli, the King of Jugglers, Stiffy and Moe. And, and they bring in imported talent and use local talent as well. I mean, people were touring here from the early part of the 19th century. The other thing about Music Hall is that it's very interactive, um, easy to put together, easy to hold in your head. And of course, once you know it, then you could go to the Music Hall and you might know a dozen or 15 of the things that appear on stage and can sing along with them. So it's participative, it's really, really strong. And of course, the audience would interject. You're looking a bit fat there tonight, Flory, you know, somebody might say. <laughs> that is so insulting. But, you know, what I do like about Music Hall, it was full of ample women with big voices uh, in middle age. You know, it wasn't just soubrettes and gorgeous young things. You could continue your career right the way through. She was a little bit on the vulgar side, I think people thought. Uh, if you work on people like this, you really do get to know them. Some ladies will give anything to keep themselves in fashion. The latest craze for slimming now, they think it's smart and dashing. That sort of thing, don't worry me. I can do without it. I can run and jump, but not too much. There's not a doubt about it that I fared fat and forty. I'm sound in wind and limb. Folks may smile, but I don't heed. I'm built for comfort, not for speed. The men just think I'm wonderful. Ah, and she was. When Florrie Ford died in 1940, the Irish poet Louis McNeese wrote a poem about her and a dying art form. It's called Death of an Actress. I see from the paper that Florrie Ford is dead, collapsed after singing to wounded soldiers at the age of 65. The American notice says no doubt all that need be said about this one-time chorus girl whose role for more than 40 stifling years was giving sexual, sentimental and comic entertainment a gaudy posy for the popular soul. Plush and cigars, she waddled into the lights, old and huge and painted in velvet and tiara. Her voice gone, but around her head an aura of all her vanilla sweet forgotten vaudeville nights. You don't get many uh, epitaphs for musical. Very you often. don't, no, no. And, you know, I don't know why you get so close to these lives. Laurie Ford, Billy Williams, Gladys Moncrief, Harry Fay, Hamilton Hill, Flotsam and Jetsam. Jeff's collected dozens of musical voices from the archives and he's passionate about their preservation. If we don't have a national collection where people can go and hear these people who occur in programs and diaries and written accounts from the early part of the 20th century, uh, then they'll never hear the soundtrack to the time. And, you know, the soundtrack to the time is there. 
Izzy and Ozzy, Lizzy, Izzy, Izzy and Ozzy, Lizzy. Is it because he is an Ozzy that he can... Jeff Brownwick's passion is for a world that seems ancient now, even if the legacy lives on in some cabaret and comedy clubs. But where can you go these days to hear a sentimental ballad followed by a dog and hoop act? Performer Chris Green is the person to ask. I've come to see him at Wilton's Music Hall in London's East End. The place opened in 1859 and nowadays offers variety with a twist. Chris Green's show features one of his alter egos, Ida Barr. It's his homage to a singer from Music Hall's glory days. That's it, that's it. I said it was musical with a twist. We'll do it as artificial hip hop, innit? You know what I'm saying? And you'll get to know each other and make friends. And there's only a little bunch of us here tonight, but we will leave here as one. That'll be smashing, won't it? Do you know what I mean? So, Chris, you just had everyone doing the hokey cokey and uh, finished with a grand finale of everybody on stage. That was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, I always end an Ida show with the Okie Koki because, I mean, the whole show is about people joining in, but that's, you know, that's the moment where everyone does join in. And it's great. I mean, it's a Tuesday night. It's in the middle of summer. So at first I was like, oh, there's not many people in. And then I'm like, great, that means everyone can come on stage. <laughs> and what a stage, because this musical, Wilton's musical, it's got a huge amount of history, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's such a thrill to play here. Wilton's was lost for 120 years and reopened as a music hall in 2004. What I'm doing is taking an old act and resurrecting it and making it relevant to now. I mean, it's the same thing in building form that I'm doing in theatrical forms. Everybody's doing it. The real Ida Barr died in 1967. So who was she? She wasn't like a household name music hall singer. She was... Somebody who was successful, worked all the time, but, I mean, she wasn't Dan Lino or Mary Lloyd or anyone at that level, and I'm just intrigued by the fact that, that she is largely forgotten. And it just seemed really nice to resurrect someone whose legacy has stalled, in a way. Yeah, it's kind of just keeping her alive. Lord knows what she would imagine, but... <laughs> So you've got an Edwardian dress, you've got a hair that looks like a haystack. You know, you're a pensioner living in a council flat and you're down on your luck. That's the, the show, isn't it? There's a pathos there, but it's kind of like keep up your spirits because that's the London Cockney way, isn't it? So is that what musical, is that what you're taking from musical? I think, yeah, I think that is what I take from the musical, that it, it was an attempt to be cheerful, but also examine things and sort of make fun of things and parody things, but also not take anything too seriously. Is its spirit still alive and kicking? I think what we would recognise as musical will never come again, and that's right. But there are lots of instances where you can see that spirit come through. And it's just from, you know, you see it at big music festivals like at Glastonbury where everyone wants to sing the chorus of every song, and that's pure musical. And in the sort of irreverence of some cabaret and some stand-up, and I think the more we look back at that and go, well, what did it give people? What liberation did it give them? Because it was used for social control in some ways, but it was also allowing people a certain amount of liberation. And we should not forget that in a hurry. And the thing that I really love about musical is that it's about shared communal joy. 
Bathing in the sunshine, let the latest style. Bathing in the sunshine, the sunshine of my baby's smile. So there you have it. The world of Music Hall was about sharing the joy, even if it also meant sharing your material against your will. And even though that era is long gone, killed off by cinema, whenever I see Charlie Chaplin waddling along as a tramp, it's not him I see, but the ghost of my great grandfather, Walter Groves. Today's program was made by Fiona Gruber, who's still discovering more of her family's theatre history. The sound engineer was Angie Grant. And for more information about the music and people in today's History Listen, head to our webpage at ABCRN. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Thanks for your company. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.